0: Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Yali Du from the University of Southern California on the show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD from the University of Rochester in 2001. You then moved on to to a postdoc with Robert Röder at the Rockefeller University. You then moved to the University of Michigan as an assistant professor in the Department of Pathology and Biochemistry in 2006, where you became associate professor in 2017 and full professor in 2020. In the same year, you then moved to the other coast, to the University of Southern California, where you are Marion and Harry Kuyper Chair of Cancer Research, Associate Director for Basic Science at the Norris Comprehensive Cancer Center and Co-Director at the Brown Center for Cancer Drug Discovery. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science?
2: Uh, I think it's... Kind of strange for me. It's, a, it's a, when I was very young, I always want to be a scientist. So when I grew up, everybody, uh, that who's smart are doing, uh, are becoming mathematician or physicist. And then, but by the time I get to the high school, all the smart people want to do biology. I think I has something to do with really the, the development of uh, all this technology and all the molecular biology, uh, all the tools available. So all of a sudden, everyone wants to become molecular biologist so that's at the, the time that I'm considering college application um and then that's my choice <laughs>
1: okay so um let's come to your science and very broadly it centers around MLL km2 and histone methyl transferases and their involvement in cancer and developmental syndromes um you're starting started working on MLL1 during your time in the lab of Robert Ruder and there you started to characterize its function. For example, you looked at the interaction of MML1 and MOF. Um, Can you talk about what you found there?
2: Yeah, so um, I think when I started my postdoc career, uh, I decided to do something with the chromatin and its uh, function in transcription. So at the, at the beginning, I tried to work on Polycomb because at, at the time, Polycom was just discovered to be a histone methotransferase, but then Bob Rader told me that it's so hard to study transcription if you study a repressor, right? Because there's so many things can go wrong. Um, it's hard to figure it out for a negative, uh, expert. So then at the time, I just have the first publication out that, um, Jay has and Devalis published a paper in Molecular Cell talking about ML as a K-4 method transference that's implicated in transcription activation. So I was like, wow, that's great. So I can study something that's still transcription activation and still has something to do with histone modification. So that's how I got started uh, working with uh, ML, and turns out to be a great project. It's, we still have a lot of unanswered questions. So back then, uh, because it's Bob readers lab, like everybody study uh, start from alchemical purification so my job is to purify the ml complex uh, so i learned how to do conventional chromatography and tried many many different uh fractionation try to get the complex uh, in the end we well, actually i got successful by tagging the protein wdr5 which is conserved in mammalian and east uh, set one complex so from that purification we actually purify I still remember we got twenty two proteins that's from that purification, and MOF is one of them so um then I decided because MOF is the the enzyme that doing dosage compensation, which actually I was also very interested in uh, when I start looking for postdoc position so um I, that immediately caught my attention, so I started. Uh, so I set up the in vitro transcription, I say, try to study the coordinate function between MLK4 methylation and MAF mediated h H4K16 acetylation. So, and then that's my uh, first publication on MLL. Um, yeah, that's, I started this career-long pursuit <laughs> of the function of the MLL from there.
1: Yeah. So you're... Then, the next obvious thing to do is when you purify factors, is to put them together again. <laughs> and this yeah. is exactly uh, what you did. So, how many factors did you actually need of those 22 to reconstitute the MLL core complex? And what did you learn from putting those complexes or those components together again?
2: Yeah. So, um, at the time, I, th- I remember vividly that uh, Bob Kinson Lab just published a paper, Reconstitute the, pol- uh, the PRC1 Complex. So I actually, um, uh, really got ins- inspiration from that effort. So I was like, we know ML set domain has very weak activity. So how can we reconstitute the whole thing? Uh, if you look at the 22 protein, every one of them actually being followed up by later studied by later studies. So, but then, uh, when I look at those 22 proteins and see how conserved they are, with the E-SET1 complex, there are not many, right? There are only four proteins or five proteins that's actually conserved between the human mammalian complex, E-SET1 complex. So that makes my job a lot easier. Uh, so I choose the, the first, uh, I think three of them, the highly conserved ones. Um, so I start doing the baclovaric expression and then put them together and then turn out to be have a great activity um, and later, I think uh, other people also try to reconstitute the complex using the bacteria expressed protein, the, um, and that makes things even more, even easier. So that actually lays the foundation for all the later biochemical cavitation and the, also the structural capitation of the complex.
0: Hey, well, we'll
1: get to that in a, in a minute. Um, it seems that uh, during your postdoctoral work, you spend a lot of time in the cold room then, right?
2: a lot of time in the culture. (laughs)
1: Uh, So then you started your own lab and continued working on MLL1 and MOF. Um, The first paper that uh, then came out was about the crosstalk of H3K4 and H3K79 methylation that is regulated by another histone, uh, namely uh, H2BK34 ubiquitinylation. So um, what got you into this and how does this whole regulation work?
2: So that's actually, so when I first started my own lab, um, I still try to do the reconstitution and then so re- try to look for the, uh, the functional interaction between ML and the MOF, right? So, uh, I have a great tool and uh, know how to reconstitute complex activity. So that's how I started with the MOF complex because the MOF complex that interact with mlwdr WDR5 is very different from the dosage compensation complex. So uh, I, I got interested in what's the difference between this non-canonical morph complex and then canonical mouth complex. and how can I, uh, if I can reconstitute this non-canonical mouth uh, complex and then try to see if it has any activity that's different from the canonical one. So um long story short, so that got us into a lot of interesting uh, ideas. Uh, one of them is like the non-canonical uh, complex does not have the protein MSR2, so which has been suspected to be a has E3 ubiquitin ligase activity. So that's how it, we got started, and we realized that that activity is not on uh, H2B uh, K120, uh, so we started to look for the new activity of that, uh, that E3 ligase. So, and then... Um, so everything has to do uh start with the biochemical calculation. I'm really proud of that mm-hmm. work.
1: Yeah, can you go into more details about that?
2: Yeah, so um I think after we, we find the activity is different, and then and that's tied back to our um, our work with ML, because we know the k 120 can stimulate ML activity. So what happens to uh H2BK34, does it really uh stimulate ML activity as well? And turns out it the answer is yes. And also another another uh interesting finding we have is that um the h 2 bk 120 or K34 uh dependent activation of ML only happens to ML or some other uh, ML family enzyme, not to all of them. So, there's actually that's the first time people show that different MLs can respond differently to the histone crosstalk. So, I think that's the major finding of that work. That is, the ML3, for example, cannot be stimulated by H2B, K120, or K34 epicrynation. On the other hand, ML1 can. So, that actually leads to uh, the question that what differentiate different ML proteins. They seem to be similar, right? They all methylate HCK4, and yet they are regulated differently by the H2B epigenation.
1: So (laughs) how are they they different? I mean, are they different or are they present in the same cell or are they just expressed in different tissues or how are they all different, those ML complexes?
2: That's the most fascinating thing. They, they you, All of the MLR ubiquitously expressed. They are in all the cells. They're pretty abundant. Um, there's three subsets of ML family, and, and to each pair, they have exactly the same set of the interacting proteins. So on paper, you would think that they have functionally redundant. And yet, if you delete any single one of the ML gene, is embryonic lethal, so <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's that's a that's a very interesting uh, question that still remains to be answered. What's differentiate them?
1: Uh, you then investigated the therapeutic potential of MLL one in MLL with um, in MLL of MM four O one. So this is a small molecule or an in- an inhibitor. Um, can you talk about this inhibitor? How you found it? And what it can do, finally.
2: Yeah. So let's go back to the my uh biochemical reconstitution work. Uh when at the end of my close to the end of my postile training. So I've as I said, so I first reconstitute the ML complexes that we only require four proteins together. And then from very early on, I know the protein WDR5 is very special because when we mutate. The wdr5 binding pocket with the ml uh, or at the time it's known that this binding pocket for his h3 tail um the whole complex fall apart so i know that pocket somehow that's involved in ml interaction and also it's a it's a it's a key to really re- assemble for the assembly of the whole protein so um at the time i so i was on the job market and then, and so kept thinking about what can we do U- utilizing this information that this interaction is key for the complex to get together and all of a sudden i think there's a eureka moment i said we can actually target this pocket to develop something that's inhibit the ml activity at the time i, d- I didn't know that wdr5 ml interaction is just uniquely required for the ml1 activity now for other MLs. At that time, I thought this could be something that's a universal uh, inhibitor that's blocked K4 methylation. That would be really cool uh, as well. So um, by the time I get to uh, University of Michigan, my first job, I immediately start looking for collaborations that can help me to develop inhibitors that block this protein-protein interaction. So um, when I asked around, I said, who should I talk to if I want to get this done? And everyone basically said, if you want to get this done, the best person you need to talk to is Xiaomong Wang, is a medicinal chemist at the University of Michigan. So we actually started our over a decade collaboration on targeting the MLWDR5 interaction. And we published the first inhibitor, I think in 2014. Uh, that's I still, I think that's the most specific inhibitor that are targeting this protein-protein interaction. So during this process, then we realized that this interaction is uniquely required for ML1. Because when we do the reconstitution for other ML complexes, uh, ML2, 3, 4, and Seg1A, seven b none of them actually absolutely require WDR5 uh, to get uh, the to be act fully active. So and then we realize we got something very specifically uh, that specifically inhibit the Ml one activity, that gives us a lot a great tool actually to study the function of Ml one in different uh, biological context.
1: And how is this connected then to to, to the leukemia? Because those um, mutation probably will then cause some overactivity of the MML then, right?
2: Yeah. So. Uh, the, the ML uh, mutation in leukemia is uh, there are actually s- multiple uh, ML aberrations in leukemia. ML can be rearranged. So, so one allele of ML can lose the C terminal part of the protein and then uh, put on a, and uh, get to the fusion with take on the C terminal domain of many uh, fusion partners. Uh, so, there are also ML amplification in leukemia and also uh, tandem duplication of leukemia in those cases uh, the ml actually keep the uh, C terminal set away so um our approach to leukemia is that we believe that because uh, in ml rearrangement uh, almost all rearrangement occurs in only one of the ML allele so which means the other allele remains intact so our hypothesis is that there got to be a pressure to keep that wild type allele so that uh, they support the cell proliferation uh, with ML rearrange, with rearrangement. So that's indeed the case because um, I think since lab at the University of Pennsylvania, they published a mouse study. So when they delete the ML wild type allele in the context of ML rearrangement, the cell proliferation goes down significantly. So um, a- around that time, uh, we said, well, great. So that's really uh, give us application to our ML inhibitors, so we tried uh, seven, eight different ML-rearranged leukemia cell lines, and all of them respond greatly to the ML1 inhibitor, so suggesting that this inhibitor uh, could function through targeting the wild-type allele uh, to achieve the leukemia inhibition. So um, although the later study uh, by Patricia Ernst shows that the ML deletion in ML rearranged leukemia may not completely abolish or inhibit the leukemogenesis. So you need ML2 also in that process. So, um, I think it could, it's possible that targeting ML1 only inhibit some of the leukemia proliferation. Uh, we need additional uh, compound, uh, but we are, no matter which cell line we tried, all of the mRNA-drenched leukemia actually responds greatly to our inhibitor.
1: Did you move on um, with this uh, inhibitor? Did you follow up on on that work?
2: Yeah. So we are... uh, Actually, moving on. Uh, A lot of other people start publishing uh, the WDR5 inhibitor. And also the recent study shows that WDR5, using exactly the same pocket, can interact with many other proteins as well. So... um, I think there's uh, blocking WDR5 may not only block ML1 activity, it could block other WDR5-interactive protein. So I think that may not give us the cleanest compound. Um, there could have a lot of other on-target uh, uh, activity that has nothing to do with ML1. So now we're taking a different approach. Uh, to target ML1 activity specifically, that's independent from this WGR5 inhibitor.
1: And what approach is that?
2: <laughs> so that's ongoing work. I'm not okay. going to disclose. Ah, ah, okay.
1: okay. <laughs> um, you then further looked at the effect of MLL1 and MLL1 fusion proteins on leukemia transcription programs. Um, so, what does those do those proteins do to the transcriptional programs?
2: Yeah. So, um, I think. Uh, because ML1 and ML rearranged leukemia, they all keep the N-terminal uh, one third of the N-terminal uh, protein, right? So those one the internal part of ML fusion and internal part of a wild-type ML, they have the ability to interact with DNA. So that leads to this long-term hypothesis that the ML fusion and the wild-type allele all targeting the same genes. For example, the Hox genes, they all target Hox genes. Uh, that leads for some reason, the amount of fusion bring in additional activities such as dot one L, such as ELL, ENL, elongation, super elongation complexes that further enhance the activity. So you need this additional boost for Hoxina expression. And that is really important for the So that's the hypothesis, but when we look at the ML-binding site with ML-fusion binding sites that's published by uh, Scott Armstrong's Law, we actually see only one-third of them localized to the same genes. So two-thirds of the uh, ML wild-type targets are very different from ML-fusion. So that has not been uh, really uh, mentioned or uh, discussed uh, in the field. So the ML wild type and ML fusion could do very different things. So what contribute to their uh, localization and targeting is still open question.
1: Okay. So one thing that is tightly connected to transcriptional programs are enhancers. <laughs> and an upstream factor of MLL proteins that promotes also leukogenesis is a pioneer factor. And this is HOX-A9. Um, you also worked on that, and uh, I would be interested in what is the function of HoxA9 and how is it connected to ML- MLL proteins?
2: Yeah, so uh, it's quite interesting. The HoxA9 has been considered right in the leukemia field for quite a long time. So 50% of AML has uh, HoxA9 upregulation, and yet we know very little about HoxA9 function. So we did the work uh, first. of all, uh, try to look at where hoxinai binds, it binds to mostly to uh, these enhancers, and then um, there's diff- there are two types of hoxinai uh, binding enhancers. One of them is one 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 group of them is actually a common between the uh, the normal hematopoietic cells and leukemia cells. They all bind to those. Um, but then there's another class of hoxane 9 enhancer in leukemia, so that depends on hoxane 9 to establish this leukemia-specific enhancer. Those enhancers are not actually uh, activated or K27 isolation marked in normal hematopoietic cells, so we consider those as a, a leukemia-specific or cancer de novo enhancers that depend on hoxane 9 And if you look at those enhancers, right, so they are mostly embryonic loci side. That's once bound by Hox nine, but then shut down in most of the normal cells, differentiated cells, or uh, adult cells. But then the, in leukemia, uh, they somehow get reactivated by this elevated uh, expression level of Hox nine. So then we try to follow up on those genes, that, like how Hox nine is able to establish those uh, cancer novel enhancers. And turn out, Hoxane 9 can interact with, ML3 and 4 at those distal regions. And if you look, knock down Hoxa9, um, a lot of those distal enhancers uh, start losing the hgk 4 monomethylation and K27 acetylation. So I think that's um, uh, how Hoxa9 really contribute to the uh, the transcription program in. 50% of the uh, the leukemia cells.
1: So this um, leukogeni- genetic, um f- influence of HoxA9 is really a concentration-dependent thing, then? So the more HoxA9 you have, the more those embryonic uh, enhancers get um, get activated because of the pioneering activity of HoxA9?
2: That certainly contributes to it. So um, I think you're like, I think nine binding, that's one aspect of it. but when we look at the uh, cancer-specific nine binding sites, those regions are quite dynamic, much more d- dynamic um, than the physiological enhancers, where you have hoxinite binding regardless of whether it's I mean in the normal hematopoietic cells. So all these cancer enhancers somehow they really rely on hoxinite. If you don't have Hoxane 9, it shuts down. But in the normal hematopoietic enhancers, if you remove Hoxane 9, it doesn't matter. I think that those enhancers could be maintained by other, uh, hematopoietic transcription factors. So I think that's why I think the elevated Hoxane 9 certainly help. And also the local chromatin configuration could also help. So what what contribute to those dynamic enhancers, um, I don't know (laughs) okay (laughs) so (laughs) let's leave
1: it at that um the next thing i want to get into is uh, and i think you already touched upon this uh, in the beginning because you were part of a team that did cryoem on the human mml1 core complex bound to the nucleosome um was that what you were referring to in the beginning um that you are doing other things um to the to um get to the mml function um and maybe can you talk about this project a little bit how you got to the structure and how well, yeah, what information you got from that structure.
2: So we actually published a lot of structures along the way on individual ML components. And uh, as I said, so the reconstitution really gave us a great starting point to understand how the ML activity is regulated. So we did a lot of work. Uh, but in the end, I felt like if we don't have a structure, we will never understand how ML is Regulated because I just cannot imagine how it works <laughs> without the structure. So um, we really try to put a lot of effort uh, to, uh, to characterize uh, the ML whole complex and most recently uh, the ML complex on, on the nucleus core particles. So this is really a very productive collaboration between my lab and the lab of Ansu Cho. Uh, who is actually learning how to do the crowd EM work himself. So it's very, uh, uh, I mean, it's very courageous of him, uh, to start the first crow EM project in his lab by working on the ML or complex with the nucleosome. So at the time, we know that, um, the H2L and the protein DY30 contribute significantly, uh, to ML activity on the NCP. So, um, But we just cannot figure out how does it work. So what by the time that he actually first saw the crowd EF structure, he told me that how ML could position itself above the nucleosome dyad. And I felt like, wow, that's really makes a lot of sense because the ML is actually very dynamic on the nucleosome core. Uh, it's a lot of rotational dynamics. That's very different from other, uh, chromatin modifying enzymes. Um, and DPI 30 and H2L really helps to clamp down the ML complex on the NCP so that it won't be as dynamic. So that makes, um, it access to the H2 tail much easier to, for both tail to access to the active site much easier. So that's really explains why the ML on the nucleosome particle, uh, I mean, the activity of ML on the nucleosome particle is regulated by uh, DPI-30 and H2O. So the structure makes a lot of sense to us.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you just uh, went over the nature communication paper that uh, was a follow-up paper to that by one sentence. <laughs> 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 um, so so the, the functional implications on how this um dynamic nature of the mml and nucleosome core particles are are unclear and you got into that um, can you maybe uh, talk about this in a bit more detail how you how you um worked on that and what the results were yeah
2: so um this is really uh the, at the as I said, so we did a lot about chemical cation of the complex. So we, we basically tried uh, test every fragment of all of the components and see what's going on. Um, from the very beginning, we know the h 2 is very special among all ML complex components, even more so than WDR5, uh, because the H2L has a lot of uh, intrinsic disorder region. Uh, that protein, um, if you... Due to the serious deletion, uh, it really uh, show like different. Uh, so basically, it's it's regulation on the uh, it's regulation of ML activity on nucleus is so drastic that I cannot imagine how this intrinsic disorder region really contribute to the activity of the ML complex. Um, so at the time, I have a, a great uh, postdoc fellow uh, Yang Tai Li. Who is actually an MR structural biologist? So he actually did a lot of work uh, with H2L in the solution. So he actually showed that when the H2L get incorporated, uh, and then also uh, with the um, the nucleus of core particles, those disrupt, dysregulated region all of a sudden uh, become structured. So that gave us the clue that maybe the IDR region upon interaction with ML, upon interaction with the nucleosome core, uh, will adopt a new structure uh, so that allow it to engage in interaction that was not available uh, if nucleosome core is not there. So that's actually got us... That's why I said um, I cannot imagine how it works without a structure. Mm -hmm. So really give us incentive to go after... The ML structure on the ncp and the later once we have that structure, now we can visualize how this IDR region work right in the context of the NCT. Because upon those interactions, this IDR form a secondary structure uh, that engage in the interactions interface of the nucleosome uh, particle, um, so that's contribute to stabilize the whole ML complex and try to limit its rotational dynamics of the complex on the CP.
1: is this dynamics in any way energy dependent or is it all physics
2: mm. so i think the ML is very different from other uh, other uh, chromatin modified enzymes other enzymes very rarely you see all these kind of dynamics so the question is it's really, uh, it's a functional relevant, right? So that's what we want to know. Uh, but if you look at the distribution of K4 methylation, it's also very interesting, right? You have regions that can do, uh, could have only monomethylation. You have regions that have trimethylation dimethylation. And yet, if you test all of the ML family enzymes, they can all do trimethylation. Even though kinetic could be a little bit different, but they can all do trimethylation. which means if the enzyme binds to a locus long enough, <clears throat> you should all see trimethylation. So if that's the case, why you have monomethylation-rich regions, right? Even ML4, they can do trimethylation in vitro and also in vivo too. So then why you have all these regions, enhancer regions, had all the monomethylation. So I think there are great regula- uh, localized regulation of ML activity, and this rotational dyna- dynamics really make it possible. right? If you think about it, if you push the, the binding configuration away from the nucleosome dyad configuration, then only one tail have access to the active site. So for a processive enzyme like ML, that means the capturing of the tail is actually harder. So that makes, that could influence the higher methylation more. So I think that's how you get localized the control. And another thing is the IDR of H2L, if you think about it, it only ha- adopted secondary structure upon interaction with STI30, upon interaction with some other uh, parts of the ML complex and also NCP. So, how about if you get rid of D pi 30, right? Then you don't have the secondary structure of the H2L. That means the, the ML complex will become very wobbly on the nucleosome. So that will limit the methylation, the trimethylation of the complex. So if you think about it that way, then d pi 30 mainly bind to the promoter. That's why you see more of a trimethylation d by 30 bind less at the enhancer that's why you see more of a monomethylation. so that's one way to explain it mm. but is d by 30 the only protein that does this job that's the question
1: so you you already said that you're do, you don't want to talk about ongoing work so if you don't want to answer my next question that's totally fine um, so imagine you are due to submitting a grant cr- proposal tomorrow what you would you have written into that
2: so um, we actually just got a grant funded. Uh, that's based on our most recent publication and Nature Cell Biology. That's uh, the first uh, calculation of the non-canonical substrate for MR. So that's uh, uh, we are now actually uh, uh, not only in just interested in the K4 methylation by ML, Actually, we're looking for additional function of ML in methylating non-canonical substrate. So, I think that's really an open field that. So, our study on ML methylation of borrelin is really the first uh, discovery of the non-histone substrates. Uh, I believe there are more non-histone substrates to ML1. Uh, so, I think that's the direction and that the lab is going to take uh, for the next couple of years mm-hmm. uh, to explore how this non-canonical function really contribute to the role of ML in cancer, uh, in stem cells, um, and in other uh, important biological contexts.
1: Okay. So for the last 35 minutes, we have been on a journey through your scientific career. Uh, did Did we miss something important, or would you like to add something?
2: Oh, no, it's really a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you very much.
1: (laughs) So then uh, I think that's a good point to end this uh, interview. Thank you, Yoli, for your time and for being on the show.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.